the Ultimate Outcome Sermon Podcast. This is Ryan. Here's Richard with today's sermon. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. Well, this morning we're continuing in our series entitled The Third Tabernacle. As you recall from last week, the Third Tabernacle refers to the new heaven and the new earth as articulated in in um, Revelation chapter 21, and, and the word tabernacle means a dwelling or the tent or the dwelling place of God, and, and our ultimate destiny is in God's presence, dwelling with Him forever. And what a beautiful, beautiful uh, description of that dwelling uh, that we saw last week. And uh, we're continuing on this week just looking at the, the, the topic of the end times and preparing ourselves or nav- being able to nav- navigate the end times. Now, people tend to be very interested in this whole topic of the end times. And um, what are some of the things that people are most interested in when they're trying to figure out end times and end times events? They're interested in knowing who the Antichrist is going to be, right? And they're interested in, or we're interested in knowing... um, if the rapture is going to come before, in the middle, or after the tribulation period. We're interested in this whole idea of who are the ten nations represented in that glorious uh, dream of King Nebuchadnezzar that was interpreted by Daniel that related to the succession of nations throughout time, and ultimately the ten nations uh, comprised the recomposition of the Roman Empire that would be... uh, bringing together a coalition in those end times. Who are those ten nations? Those are things that people are really interested in. People are interested in the idea of, will the church go through any or all of the tribulation? People are interested in the idea, uh, is the thousand-year reign described in the book of Revelation, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ here on the earth, is it a literal thousand-year reign or is it an allegory? People are interested in answering that question. There are many other questions that are pe- people are really interested in knowing about concerning the very end of human history. But the very most important thing that believers need to know uh, is, are the things that we're going to be looking at. And the very most important thing that, that uh, believers need to know is how will my faith stay intact in the midst of the challenges that will face it in the end times? Will my faith stay intact? How can I remain faithful and victorious in the challenges that are going to occur in the end times? When Christ returns, will he find me uh, faithful to his promises? Will I still be believing in the cross and the power of the resurrection? Will I be believing in the promised future of Christ, or will I have abandoned uh, my faith in favor of the forces that try to lead me away from Christ? Um, We saw last week what we called the third tabernacle. Uh, The third tabernacle we traced through the whole Bible, where we started out with the first tabernacle in the desert, which was that tent, that tent of meeting that God had instructed Israel to create to be a place of God's presence in the midst of his people. And we saw the second tabernacle was Christ himself, where John says uh, that in Jesus the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt there is tabernacled or tented or made his dwelling among us. And then we see the third tabernacle. This word again comes up in Revelation 21 when it talks about the most central uh, aspect of heaven, which is the new heaven and the new earth, which is the very presence of God filling all that there is, the removal of all evil and the presence of good at its highest state forever. Uh, that's what we saw in the third tabernacle. And we began last week by talking about the enemies uh, of our enemies that would keep us from our journey or dissuade us on our journey to that third tabernacle. For some reason, uh, this isn't advancing, Claire. Maybe you could advance it for me. Anyway, those three enemies, the three enemies that are dissuading us from uh, from in our journey in, to the third tabernacle are these three. The, the three enemies of our faith, S-I-D, Sid, seduction, those things that cause men to just wander off course, you know, just distractions that cause us to just uh, be going along uh, and wander off course. You know the English expression, uh, red herring. The, the expression red herring came from the idea of of a, um, a dead, smelly fish being dragged across the path uh, uh, of of hunting dogs looking for a fox. And when they caught the smell of the dead fish, they would be distracted and they would be knocked off path. That's what seduction is, to be distracted or seduced off the path. And then um, the next area of, of concern for us is intimidation. Those things that frighten us, that cause us to fearfully uh, turn away from our course. And the third is deception. Those things that cause men to take the wrong course where they believe uh, in some other uh, object other than Christ himself. So we saw and concluded last week by looking at this verse here that the one who conquers will have this heritage, this heritage of the third tabernacle, and he will be, uh, and I will be his God and he will be my son, the Bible says. The most important thing to know about the end times is to know what opposes our saving faith and how we can battle against that. How can we become victorious over what is truthfully an overwhelming enemy? What is our secret weapon in conquering all of the things that would try to come against our trust in Jesus Christ, our trust in the cross, our trust in the empty tomb, our trust in his future promises. What are the things that will attack those and what is our strategy? Well, we are underdogs when it comes to winning that war. We are facing an enemy that's stronger than we are individually. We need a secret weapon or a secret plan or a secret strategy of attack to successfully uh, na navigate through the end times. I don't know how many of you have read any of Malcolm Gladwell's books, but one of his recent books is called David and Goliath. And in that book, he looks at how 
underdogs ended up victorious. And uh, in this book, he has one example. Of course, D David is the classic underdog being victorious over Goliath. But Malcolm Gladwell points out that David defeated Goliath because he operated in his strength and stayed away from Goliath's strength. He had a certain strength in the distance that he was from Goliath, and he had a strength in that rock that could fly further than Goliath's sword could reach. And as long as he was operating in his realm, he could uh, have a hope of defeating that giant. If he tried to fight Goliath based on Goliath's strengths, he would have surely been, or most likely been, defeated. Well, in this book, uh, Malcolm Gladwell uses an example of, um, of this guy here. His name is um, Varick Ran Ranadive, and he is a computer engineer from India who works in Silicon Valley. And his 12-year-old daughter wanted to be on the Redwood City Junior basketball team, and they didn't have a coach. She didn't know how to play basketball. And he offered to coach the team. He didn't know anything about basketball. He had two players that knew how to play basketball, and all the other girls were brand new to the game. And he was playing against teams that were far better equipped to play basketball, far better trained than he was and his girls were. And so he had to come up with some kind of strategy to win. Well, he knew one thing for certain, his girls couldn't shoot. Maybe two of them could shoot okay, but the others couldn't shoot anything other than a layup. So they needed to get a lot of layups. And um, so he devised his strategy as being one in which they practiced a relentless full court press. And if you're um, a basketball player at all, you know a full court court press. Normally what, what happens in a basketball transition from offense to defense is everyone runs down and you set up your defense on the offensive side of the court. And then, you know, the uh, offense runs their offense. Well, he, every once in a while, teams will use what's called a full court press where they'll pick up their man and start defending the whole court. Well, he did this every single play play after play after play, which took good uh, uh, conditioning. And he did it because he knew the only way we can win this is if we get a lot of uh, turnovers and we get a lot of layups. He totally frustrated that league, and he, he won many games. I think he may have even won the league uh, with this strategy before they you know, caught on to how to deal with it. Um. See, now we have to say in our battle, what is our advantage? Where can we go to defeat the enemies of our faith? What is our secret weapon? Well, I'm not stronger than the deceiver. I'm not smarter than the deceiver. I'm not more wily than my enemy. So what can I do to maintain my faith in Christ in this, what will be the end times challenges to my faith. Well, the secret weapon of every Christian isn't within the Christian themselves. It's within the power and the sovereignty of God. Because God is powerful 
and because God's promises are always true, and because his word is reliable, we can turn to him and rely on him to give us the strength necessary for us to uncover the deceptions that we will face, uh, to persevere through the intimidations that will be brought against us, and to know the seductions that would lead us off the path. Today, as we continue in our series, uh, The Third Tabernacle, Navigating the End Times, we're going to be looking at these three enemies as Jesus teaches about them in the question that he answers in Matthew chapter 24 when his disciples asked him about the end times. Can our faith be broken is the question we should ask ourselves as we look at the Scripture this morning. How important is it for us to remain faithful and trusting the cross and the power of the resurrection and the promises of Christ all the way through to the very end. This morning's message is uh, entitled, um, Faith That Endures. Faith That Endures, and we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and we thank you that we're not alone. We're thankful that you have given us uh, the ability to persevere through all those things that would come and test and challenge our faith. And we thank you, Lord, that with you we are totally confident that our saving faith is reliant upon you and nothing can take it away from us. Lord, nothing can defeat it. Nothing can defeat faith that is putting a trust not in ourselves but in you. We are completely safe if you are the object of our faith. And we pray, Father, this morning that as we look at the challenges that Jesus tells us will come against our faith in the end times, that our faith will be proved genuine, saving faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Chapter 24, beginning at verse 1, reading Matthew 1, 24, 1 through 14, starts like this. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So they were leaving uh, the temple area. They were traveling down the valley over to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples were going, wow, look at this beautiful building and all of its structures. What a great sight it is from this valley. Isn't it a wonderful thing to just marvel and look at? And Jesus says this, uh, but he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, 
and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, but the one who endures to the end, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel and, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In the second half of the 19th century, the founder of our denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, a prominent pastor in New York City, A.B. Simpson, was asked by a journalist. The journalist came up to A.B. Simpson and asked him, uh, he kind of was one of those gotcha questions, um, Pastor Simpson, can you tell us when Jesus is going to return? And pa Pastor Simpson said to the journalist, I can tell you when Jesus is going to return, and I will tell you when Jesus is going to return if you promise that you'll quote me word for word. And the journalist said, I will quote you word for word if you tell me when Jesus is going to return. So A.B. Simpson read verse 14. He read verse 14 word for word, which says, you know, that when the gospel is preached to all nations, then the end will come, or all ethnic groups, then the end will come. Well, I just wanted to note that when I was talking to Pam Dumas, who works with Wycliffe Bible Translators this past week, that they're very excited. They're very excited because they've developed a new parallel team translation technique that seems to be able to produce uh, a rough draft of a New Testament in a new language in uh, like 12 weeks as opposed to six years. Bill, there is going to be, if this continues to apply in every uh, hidden people group, an exponential uh, going forth into every ethnic group, uh, the truth of the gospel. Wow. Two weeks as opposed to, I said 12 weeks, but it was actually two weeks as opposed to six weeks. Six years, I mean. Yeah, six years. I'm sorry. Um, so... The task is being accomplished, and the question is, you know, what are we going to be uh, about during these last times, during these end times? Uh, are we going to stand firm as our faith is tested? One of the things that we see in Jesus' description of the end times is that the most important thing that he wants to get across to us is the theme this morning. He, he doesn't necessarily want us to know all of the historical exact details and sequences of what's going to happen in the end times, but he wants us to know that we 
are going to face a challenge, that our, ta- our, our faith is going to be tested. Uh, the theme this morning is this. For believers, the end times are a time of testing. Let's take a look at verses 3 and 4 again. For believers, the end times are a time of testing. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your, com- of your coming and the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. That's his first answer. Look, I want to start out by saying, Make sure you don't get led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Here we have a private moment on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus' disciples have just heard him make this claim about the temple. They're sitting here on the Mount of Olives talking in a private way with each other. And Jesus is just looking at the temple across the valley there saying, I, uh, the, I predict that, that this temple that you see, this glorious structure you brought to my attention, will be torn down. There won't be one single block on top of another. And so the disciples ask two questions here in response to that. They ask him, tell us when this temple, when these things are going to take place. And they also ask him, also tell us what will be, what will be, what will it be like when you come again and tell us about the close of the age or the end times. The first question about the temple, Jesus did not answer. Um, it is interesting to note, however, uh, as Josephus, the uh, ancient Jewish historian, recorded that this temple was so thoroughly destroyed some decades after Christ predicted that it would be that the destruction went to even plowing up the base foundation stones in the temple plaza. A totally unlikely thing for people to go to that much effort to completely destroy every stone upon every stone. And they did it even with uh, Tiberius, uh, the Roman emperor, uh, ordering them not to destroy the temple. There was just, that temple was going to get destroyed, and it was going to get destroyed the way Jesus said that it would be destroyed. But Jesus didn't answer that question. He didn't, he didn't talk about the temple, but he did answer the question, the second question. Um, and it begins, he begins that answer with that command. He begins the answer of his second question of what, when is, what is your coming going to be like and what are the signs of the end days? He, he begins with a command, and that command is, uh, see to it, see to it that you don't l- let yourself be led astray. From Jesus' point of view, the main characteristic he wanted to get across uh, to them about the end times, that they should be mindful of the challenge that their faith will 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 face, and there are three three things that he says will threaten your faith in this passage, that would cause men to walk away from their faith. In this passage, Jesus lays out the three things that pull us or drive us away from our reliance on Jesus Christ and His saving grace. And of course, we've already talked about those three things: uh, the three enemies of our faith, Sid, uh, S I D. Seduction, intimidation, and deception. Um, Seduction, the first thing we see in verse 5, where he says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and 
they will lead many astray. Where it says lead many astray, the, the, the word there is planeo, and it literally means to seduce somebody to wander off the path, to, to cause somebody through seduction to, to, to astray or wander off the path that they're on. And here it says that they'll cause people to wander away from Christ by people claiming they themselves are Christ. And now many have done those things, like one of the biggest I am Christ movements in our time was uh, the Reverend Moon from, from Korea. But there's also David Koresh. There's many who have done this. But I think this, this truth is a much broader truth. Whatever we place the very highest thing, the thing that we love the most, is our Christ. It is our Messiah. That which guides our path is our Christ. That which we follow and love the most is the Messiah that we uh, follow. And if that Messiah isn't Jesus, then we're wandering after a false Christ. Now, whatever you're led by, if it's something other than Jesus, it will seduce you away from Jesus. You have a number one in your life. And whatever that number one is, is your God, is your Christ. A lot of the number ones that we have in our life would not necessarily be bad in themselves if they were number two, number three, or number four. But when they become number one, they seduce us away from Christ. Some of the things that seduce us away from Christ in our modern secular times are prosperity or or pleasure or popularity or self-righteousness, or the quest for intelligence, or power, or strength, or health. All kinds of things that can be our magnum opus, our number one, our absolute uh, goal in life. And these things should all be of lesser importance to us than Christ. If they're not, they are our Christ. They are, they become our leader. And what they do is they cause us to be like sheep wandering away from our shepherd. They seduce us off of the path of reliance on Christ, his work on the cross, his empty tomb, and his promises for our future. The second thing that will test our faith in the end times is intimidation. Number two, intimidation, that which would cause us to turn back out of fear. Let's take a look at verses 6 through 10. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Okay, Make sure that you're not afraid in these times that are fearful. Uh, Make sure you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. The end times will be a time where many will fall away from a less than solid faith. Anyone that has true saving faith, who's, who has Christ as their Messiah, will not fall away from their faith. But our faith will be tested. And anyone who proclaims to be a follower of Christ, but is really following something else, 
that will become evident. And one of the things that will cause it to become evident will be, uh, as in the parable of the seed and the sower, when hard times come, uh, the, the, the seed that germinated just shrivels up like a seed in, planted in rock and not in good soil. In the end times, there will be a irrational hatred of Christians. Do you, you, you see that coming at all, or do you feel that on the horizon? Uh, certainly, if you were living in the Middle East, you would, you would say that is here in full blossom. But even here in, in the, this country that was, whose liberties were born out of the Judeo-Christian tradition, there is an increasing uh, hatred and antagonism towards anyone who would uh, call Jesus Christ their king. Um, this irrational, if you want to see the canary in the, in the coal mine kind of idea, just look at Israel. There is a total irrational, ir, irrational hatred of Israel throughout the world, through all the nations. Uh, and it's irrational because Israel has been the greatest blessing to human history of any nation because through Israel, we've gotten concepts of law and justice and mercy and grace and redemption that come from nowhere else in the, in the purity and the clarity that it came from through uh, this little nation, Israel, that God has used her so powerfully to bless us with freedom and with all the, the blessings of of righteousness and character that in cooperation that develop into, into a civilized order. And yet she who has been the greatest blessing is hated and we're not far behind. Uh, when you are rejected for being a Christian, when somebody or something or some group of people rejects you for being a Christian, the question is, will that cause you to reject Christ? If you become rejected for being a Christian, will that cause you to reject Christ? Um, recently, Franklin Graham was being interviewed on, um, I think it was with Megan Kelly. I can't remember who the person interviewing him was. But uh, the interviewer asked him, they were talking about children who are being slaughtered by ISIS in, in Iraq. And there was this one documentation of these four children who were brought before these ISIS butchers, and they were asked to renounce their Christian faith. And the, these four little children did not renounce their Christian faith, and they were slaughtered right there for uh, standing firm with Christ. And the interviewer asked Franklin Graham, why shouldn't have these kids just told them what they wanted to hear so that they could preserve their life. And Franklin Graham kind of looked dumbfounded at her. Like, you don't, you know, you don't really understand what's at stake here. I don't really remember his response. It was kind of like, of course they would stay with the, the, the martyrs of all times and, and not defy their Lord. He said something like that. But in, in his, in his expression, it was, his expression was, I could almost hear him saying, would you sacrifice a million dollars to save one dollar? Who would sacrifice a million dollars to save one dollar? If you really know what we have in Christ, uh, th then there, it is such a value 
that our own lives, our own temporary lives, are nothing in compared to the benefit of what we have in Christ. If we trust God's word, if his promises are true, why would we have forfeit eternal glory for a few more years in this, whatever you'd call this place, <laughs> in, in this fallen world? Why would we sacrifice our place in the third tabernacle for, for a few more decades of, 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 of suffering in a fallen world? Of course they're not going to denounce their faith because they know who is the object of their faith and they believe his promises are true. The third area that we are going to be looking at in weeks ahead that challenge our faith is this area of deception. Deception is that which causes men to take the wrong course. It's, it's what happened in the garden. It's what's happened throughout uh, human history. Let's take a look at verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, um, Jesus says in verse 11. Now, a false prophet is uh, a pseudo. In Greek, it's pseudo prophetes. And it means pseudo deceptive teacher. The teachers who willfully and knowingly twist the truth that lead people away from sound doctrine, biblical doctrine. It can sound good. It can sound even close to the truth. But if it leads you away from the truth, it's deceptive. Now, let me try to illustrate it to you this way. A false prophet, for all you angel fans, is like a Dodger fan who gives directions to Angel Stadium. And he says, if you want to go from University Park Church, I'm a Dodger fan, so I'll be the false prophet. If you want to go to Angel Stadium, one way of getting there is you could go down the 210 freeway, take the, um, go down the 215 freeway, go east on the 210 freeway, go down the 57 freeway, go to the 91 freeway, and turn east and just keep going. Uh, Kosar almost got you there. <laughs> but you ended up in Los Angeles where the real team is. Uh, that's what a false prophet is like. A false prophet can, can give a lot of accurate information, but in a crucial point, turn you in the wrong direction, and you'll miss your destination. Oh, you know, willfully deceptive and cunningly designed to take you off path. Now, we're going to be looking at that in weeks ahead, too, because there are a lot of scriptures that warn us against false teachers. And there are many aberrations of the gospel that are growing in number and severity even in our time. There is a growing leg legend of teachers who call themselves Christians who deny the essentials of biblical truth. There are those who many have followed who are denying the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of hell, and therefore the doctrine of redemption. Um, we'll be looking at, and I probably won't be naming because I, I, don't want, I don't know for sure who's who, but we'll be looking at various principles of how to discern uh, who's telling the truth and how to know if you're being deceived. Um, 
we will look at each of these three areas in the weeks ahead and and preparation for these end times is the most valuable thing that we have. Our faith in Jesus Christ needs to be preserved. But for today, I want to emphasize the most important thing to know about the end times is that it is a time of testing. Um, there are a lot of interesting things. And, you know, I came into Christianity really interested in the end times, and I kind of cooled off on it a little bit because uh, uh, in my generation, a lot of the end times pat preachers had everything nailed down to uh, approximately when Jesus was going to come uh, in terms of their prophecies of the generations and the fig tree and all these different things, and it didn't happen. Now, someday, people who are giving specific ideas about exactly what's going to happen in its sequence are probably going to be right. But the truth is, is that throughout history so far, um, Everyone's been wrong so far in terms of details of the end times. Somebody's going to get it right, but up until now, people haven't been right in saying this guy's the Antichrist or this, these are the ten toes of Daniel or this is the sequence of events. I mean, there, there's been whole groups of people who um, have given up everything and gone up on a hill waiting for Jesus to come on a particular day and time who have been wrong. And uh, so I'm not so interested in nailing down the details as I am in, in preparing us to go through those times uh, successfully, which is the most important thing after all anyway. Well, there's my uh, Dodger fan illustration there, so forgot to put that one up. Um, the theme again this morning is, for believers, the end times are a time of testing. And point number one is that many will turn away or be led astray from their faith. Uh, let's take a look at uh, verses 10 through 12 again. Many, the word many is used over and over again here. Many will turn away or be led away from their faith. Verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because Lawlessness, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. Um, there's going to be a whole crowd of people in the end times that will fall away, be led away, or whose love will grow cold. Let me put it this way. There's no safety in numbers. I'm not saying where there is a number of people that necessarily there's something wrong there, but there is no absolute safety in the crowd. There never has been safety in the crowd. In fact, the crowd, uh, in terms of our broader culture and the cultural trends, almost always go in the wrong direction. The crowd is not a safe thing to follow. Uh, some of the best advice ever given was given by Christ himself, and let me paraphrase what Christ says. Don't do what everyone else has done. <laughs> That's what he says when he talks about the narrow path and the wide path. Don't go the way everywhere uh, everyone else is going. He, he says, you know, there's these two paths in life. Uh, one is a wide path that leads to destruction, and many, many are on that path. And one is the narrow way that leads to life. And there are a few people on that path. That's what Jesus says. Choose the narrow path, the true path, 
the path that leads to life. The wide path with the many is not a trustworthy path. There is not wisdom in numbers. If you think, oh, I'm safe because most people are going in that direction, so this must be the right direction, not a good idea. Not a good idea with economic investment, not a good idea with uh, wisdom, not a good idea with spirituality, not a good idea. The crowd usually is not right. There's a huge push in modern, even in the modern evangelical movement to be relevant. And there's a real question out there is whether or not the culture is influencing the church more than the church is influencing the culture. But let me say this, when it comes to truth becoming irrelevant, when the truth itself is starting to be proclaimed as irrelevant, it's better to be irrelevant than it is to be relevant. When the cross and the empty tomb become irrelevant, count me in for being among the irrelevant troops. When insisting that the name of Jesus is the only name by which men can become redeemed, out of sin and death becomes unpopular and irrelevant. Count me among the rejects. Why? Because I want what Jesus promises. I want the best possible thing that this world could possibly offer that comes through redemption in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want that. And I don't want what anyone else has to offer. I want what Jesus has to offer. And I want my faith to emerge victorious. Again, the theme this morning is, for believers, the end times is a time of testing. Point number one is many will turn away or be led astray from their faith. Point number two is, uh, the one whose faith endures to the end will be saved. Let's take a look at verse 13. Jesus says this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Anybody know who's, who, who's, who, whose picture this is a likeness of? This is Benedict Arnold. And Benedict Arnold was a traitor, uh, and because he was a traitor, he did not share in the victory of the Revolutionary War. Prior to his defection, he was a very important uh, general in the American um, cause, and he had um, remained faithful to that cause. If he would have remained faithful to that cause, he would have been a highly decorated American hero. As it was, at one point in the war effort, he thought Americans are going to lose. So since the Americans are going to lose, I'm going to throw my lot in with the British. And by doing that, he ended up with a double dishonor, the dishonor of being among the vanquished and the dishonor of being a traitor. No matter how bleak our prospects in life are, there's no way for us to give up our trust in Jesus if we, if we want the ultimate prize and the ultimate victory. It is impossible for us to be victorious on our own. But with the strength and the help of Jesus Christ, we can be victorious in Him. It boils down to this. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be? 
do we believe that he accomplished on the cross and the and his resurrection what he claimed to accomplish? And will he fulfill the promises that he has promised to those who put their trust in him? If we believe in Jesus, not even our own lives are worth forfeiting for what have been in for what for what we have in Christ. Not even our own lives are worth forfeiting. Our lives are like a dollar to a million compared to what we have in Christ. Again, for believers, the end of time times are a time of testing. Many will turn away or be led astray from their faith. The one whose faith endures to the end shall be saved. Um, I'd like to conclude this morning by retelling the story, if you may already know about it, of the Six-Day War in Israel. The Six-Day War in Israel happened in June of 1967, and it was uh, a moment in time when Syria, Jordan, and Egypt all conspired to wipe Israel off the map. And the Israeli intelligence was able to pick up movements against them in Jordan and Egypt. And so they deployed their forces where they saw the threat. But they were unable, or they didn't pick up their intelligence that, of the threat that was coming down from Syria. And so when the Syrian army started moving down through what is the Golan Heights, which this is a picture of above the Sea of Galilee, when they started moving towards the Golan Heights, Israel had just a handful of tanks to defend that portion of their country. There was no reasonable expectation that they could last more than a couple hours. But these tank commanders said, hey, we die, we die, we, whatever happens, happens. We got to defend our homeland. So uh, up on top of the Golan Heights came, I think it was three tanks against the whole Syrian army. And the Syrians looked at those three tanks and they thought, what are these wily Israelis up to? And they spent a whole day trying to figure out their strategy. Who would come against us with three tanks? That 24 hours gave the, the Israeli armed forces enough time to redeploy the forces necessary to wipe out the Syrians. Otherwise, they would have had an open corridor into Jerusalem. Our victories in Christ. No matter what it looks like when we face the enemy, our victory is in this seek our secret weapon. Weapon. God is sovereign. His word is true, and His power conquers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, and we just thank you for the truth of your gospel. And we pray, Father, that you would bless us as we go forward in these end times, facing every challenge, joyfully trusting in you, in the truth of your word, and in the power of your resurrection. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.